Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode number nine, Juan Ponce de Leon and the Official Discovery of Florida. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I recorded today's episode on February 17th, 2021 in blacked out and very cold Austin, Texas. You'll be thrilled to know, however, that I was able to locate some power at my wife's therapy office where I have decamped for the purpose of recording this episode for release on Friday, February 19th. If you're tuning in for the first time, we are telling the history of the people who inhabited and inhabit the lands now constituting the United States. To set up that history, we devoted two episodes to the Indians before 1492 and five to the story of Christopher Columbus through his first voyage. The last episode was a very high-altitude introduction to the Columbian Exchange, the extraordinary transfer of diseases, plants, people, animals, insects, and technology and culture between the two hemispheres after 1492. It is therefore high time we turn to the European exploration of North America. And by the self-imposed boundaries of this podcast, that era began with Juan Ponce de Leon and his discovery of Florida in 1513. Now, if you are Anglophilic or merely a John Cabot fanboy, you might rise in high dudgeon over skipping over of his discovery of Newfoundland in 1497 at the behest of English King Henry VII. Well, Newfoundland is in Canada, not the United States. No offense, but outside of our subject area, just as almost all of the discoveries of Columbus's second, third, and fourth voyages also are. So by what feeble reasoning then do we justify studying Columbus's first voyage and not Cabot? I knew you'd ask. There are at least two reasons. First, but for Columbus, there would not have been a European exploration of North America, at least when it happened. And if the Arabs or the Chinese had beaten the Europeans to the discovery, in the usual air quotes, there might never have been. Indeed, Henry VII turned down Columbus's invitation to sponsor his expedition. So, but for Columbus, there wouldn't have been John Cabot either. Second, Cabot really didn't do that much. He sailed west across the North Atlantic from Bristol, searched without success for a Northwest passage to China, and found Newfoundland. There he and his men went ashore for a bit, seemingly met no Indians, but somehow left enough trinkets lying around that Indians captured there years later were in possession of items of European manufacture. After poorly mapping Newfoundland's coast, Cabot returned to Bristol, was briefly feted in London and rewarded by Henry, and then died without a trace on his second voyage to the New World. So there, Cabot done. The same reasoning calls for skipping over Yao Fernandez Lavradar. So sorry again for the pronunciation. The Portuguese explorer who mapped Labrador in Newfoundland. His story and any number of other such expeditions are interesting enough if you are super into expeditions of discovery, per se. But for us, they're just a means to an end, which involves hastening on to the history of the Americans. I might struggle more if you chided me for skipping over the discovery and settlement of Puerto Rico, 
which is today certainly populated by Americans, even if it is not yet a state. Well, I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time on Guam either, but Puerto Rico became American territory in 1898 and therefore fits within our mandate. And since it involves Ponce de Leon, it makes all the sense in the world to hit the high points there before moving on to Florida. Ponce was born into a respectable family in 1474 in a small agricultural town about 180 miles northwest of Madrid. In his youth, he trained in the military arts and apprenticed for a leading Spanish knight, which inevitably involved him in the wars against the Moors. Ponce was present at the fall of the Kingdom of Granada in 1492 and might well have crossed paths with Christopher Columbus, who joined the Spanish marching into the city when it surrendered on January 2nd, 1492. Whether or not that happened, Ponce joined more than a thousand other men in Columbus's second voyage, which sailed for the New World in 1493. The second voyage reached the Lesser Antilles on November 3rd, 1493, and worked its way northwest past the many vacation hotspots of the region, including Montserrat, Antigua, St. Martin, and St. Croix, and gave us the name with some intervening translation, the Virgin Islands. On November 19th, the fleet reached Puerto Rico. Columbus named the island San Juan Bautista after St. John the Baptist, but didn't do much while there, and we don't know what Ponce did either. The fleet moved on to Hispaniola, and that was that until more than a decade later. In 1504, we find Ponce in command of a company of soldiers in the city of Santo Domingo, the principal port on Hispaniola, the island that today comprises Haiti and the Dominican Republic. His job was to mop up the last remaining pocket of Indian resistance on the island, the eastern province known as Higüe, on the Mona Passage between Hispaniola and San Juan Bautista. There he started farms and ranches and founded a town. Sometime during this period, Ponce found the time to marry Leonor, the daughter of an innkeeper in Santo Domingo. Sure, all very nice. In 1505-1506, Ponce heard rumors of gold on San Juan Bautista. He crossed the Mona Passage and established a mining settlement called Capara, near today's San Juan Bay. By 1508, Ponce had negotiated a contract to mine gold on behalf of King Ferdinand. Here we will pause briefly to sort out matters of nomenclature, knowing how important that is to you. After its discovery, from now on you may assume air quotes around that word, the Spanish named the most important settlement on San Juan Bautista Puerto Rico, which meant rich port in recognition of the gold and other goodies found there. Gradually, usage changed, and Europeans who had dealings on the island flipped the names and began to refer to the island as Puerto Rico and its principal port as San Juan. Starting now, I will use the flipped modern names to avoid confusion. Finally, the Tainos Indians, who were obviously there first, called the island neither of these things. Their term was Borican, if I'm pronouncing it properly a term that apparently survives in local usage even to this day. On that last point, I have only Wikipedia to believe, so confirmation or refutation by actual, knowledgeable people 
would be most welcome. Here I will also explain gold, which comes up again and again in the history of the Americans for the benefit of some of our younger listeners. Gold is like Bitcoin with certain similarities and differences. Like Bitcoin, gold has to be mined. Although in those days, you mined it with slaves or grossly underpaid people. Gold is useful as a currency and a store of value, just like Bitcoin. Unlike Bitcoin, you could decorate stuff, including your own body, with gold. And you can't lose it if you forget a password. Of course, you need not haul Bitcoin around on treasure ships and stagecoaches and so forth, so pirates and privateers and robbers are not really interested in Bitcoin. I'm sure there are other important similarities and differences. In any case, Ponce owned a gold mine, had a deal with the king of Spain, and started farms and cattle ranchers nearby, just as he had done on Hispaniola. He was on his way, as it were, until who should show up in August 1509 but Christopher Columbus's son, Diego. Now, if you listen to the second episode on Columbus the father, you will recall that his contract with Ferdinand and Isabella provided that Columbus shall take and keep a tenth of all gold, silver, pearls, gems, spices, and other merchandise produced or obtained by barter and mining within the limits of these domains, free of all taxes. And further, that all rights and prerogatives appertaining thereunto shall be enjoyed by his heirs and successors perpetually. Well, since Columbus had died in the spring of 1506, Diego was, in his reading of the contract, entitled to a tenth of all that stuff, including Ponce's gold. Indeed, Diego is of the firm conviction that King Ferdinand's contract with Ponce itself violated the original capitulations of 1492, and that the capitulations also vested the authority to govern lands discovered by Columbus in Columbus and his heirs. In the event, Diego appointed a couple of officials to run Puerto Rico, and Ferdinand responded by appointing a Ponce governor of the island. Ponce arrested Diego's officials, so Diego sued King Ferdinand, Isabella having died in late 1504, in the royal council, and actually won in the important causes of action, including the right to appoint his own political officials. Ponce was out, Diego was in, and we learn the historically useful lesson that even 500 years ago, the most powerful king in Europe, reigning by divine right, had to live under the rule of law. Ferdinand, having been forced by his own court to remove Ponce from the office of governor, granted him instead a license to explore and discover the lands reputed to lie to the north, and, in particular, the island of Bimini. At this point, I'll turn to a passage from a 2013 paper by the Florida historian Samuel Turner. The Lucayos, the island group today called the Bahamas and the Turks and Caicos Islands north of Hispaniola, were first discovered by Christopher Columbus in 1492. Since that time, they had become a source of Taino slaves for the mines, farms, and ranches of Hispaniola. By 1513, they had been virtually depopulated by Spanish slavers and abandoned by those remaining non-enslaved Tainos who had left, possibly to Florida, to escape the reach of the Spanish. 
During the course of one of these slaving voyages in the Lucayos, a mariner named Diego de Miruelo accidentally discovered a large land to the north when his vessel was driven there in a storm. Miruelo traded with those he encountered, but took no captives. This was curious behavior for a slaver like Miruelo, but he may have observed that the Indians were a more dangerous adversary and felt himself underarmed for such a venture. He may also have realized that the slaving license issued to him by the government in Santo Domingo did not include this new land and that he would have legal problems upon his return if he took captives. Shortly thereafter, slavers went directly to this new land in search of captives. The first slaving voyage to follow Miruelo did not have a license for that region. When the ship returned to Santo Domingo with slaves, local Spanish authorities condemned the slaver and attempted without success to have the Indians repatriated. Thus, the initial discovery in the North, sometimes termed Bimini, became common knowledge, even appearing on a map published in 1511. This unofficial discovery led ultimately to Ponce's licensed voyage of 1513. In other words, assuming the large land that Miruelo encountered was indeed mainland Florida, Juan Ponce de Leon would not have been the first European to set foot on Florida or, for that matter, the land of today's United States. But he would be the first one to do so officially with a license. Diego de Miruelo will, by the way, appear again in our story. Years later, he will make a catastrophic navigational error that will lead to the deaths of almost 300 people and kick off one of the most extraordinary stories of adversity and personal survival in American history. Ponce assembled a fleet of three ships, probably caravels, and crewed them not only with sailors but also landsmen, primarily soldiers. The fleet left the western coast of Puerto Rico on March 3, 1513, and first saw the Lucayo Islands, I'll call them the Bahamas from now on, on March 8. Six days later, they anchored at Guanahani, the Indian name for Watling's Island, the site of Columbus's first landfall in the New World. And there they performed such maintenance as might be necessary to cross the windward gulf of the Atlantic to the mainland. Now, there is arcane controversy over when, precisely, Ponce first saw Florida and where he saw it which derives in part from another arcane debate over whether today's Watlings Island is in fact Guanahani and the site of Columbus's first landfall on the first Columbus Day. You can see some of this if you search for maps of Ponce's 1513 expedition. They are all different in one small respect or another. For my part, I don't really care terribly about resolving that arcane controversy, but I wanted to alert you to it in case you get a wild hair and dig deeply into the official discovery of Florida. I'd hate for you to be taken by surprise. In any case, in due course, Ponce's three ships left Guanahani to the northwest and on Easter Sunday, March 27, 1513, spotted land to their west. This is the moment of greatest controversy. Was that the mainland or an island? Historians have offered many alternatives based on math, texts, experience at sea, and so forth. Samuel Turner's paper on the subject reaches across 500 years, dissects the arguments, and concludes that Ponce did see the mainland. 
I'll spare you the ins and outs and what have yous. You'll have to trust me. Or failing that, click through the link on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. As I said, I have no dog in this hunt, so I'm going to use March 27th as the first official sighting of Florida and get the heck out of Dodge to make some metaphor. Ponce's crew did not, however, anchor and go to shore on March 27th. If they had, they would have taken a fairly accurate reading of latitude, which would have disposed of the historical argument as long as somebody wrote it down. You may or may not recall from our third episode on Columbus that the tools of the day made it very difficult to measure latitude accurately from a ship at sea because the movement of the ship screwed up the ability to get an accurate reading. Explorers of that era would go ashore if land were available to them to nail down their location or their latitude accurately. Instead, the fleet headed northwest along the peninsula for three days until it was hit by a storm on March 30th. On April 2nd, after having been blown around for a couple of days, conditions improved and the fleet continued north until evening, anchoring in 48 feet of water somewhere in the vicinity of the future city of St. Augustine. On the morning of April 3rd, 1513, Ponce and his away team went ashore and spent the next few days doing... We don't have the first clue. All we know is that he took possession for Spain and since Easter, called Pascua, Florida by the Spanish, had been the day when he first saw land, Ponce named it La Florida. The ugly truth is that nobody journaled, as the kids today would say, better than Christopher Columbus, which to some degree may explain his prominence in humanity's imagination. Ponce kept one, but it is now lost, so we do not know how detailed or descriptive he was in his writing. We know what we know about Ponce's travels and any number of other Spanish explorers through the efforts of Antonio de Herrera, who lived from 1559 to 1625. In 1592, basically 80 years later, King Philip II appointed Herrera to the position of official historian of the Indies. His magisterial work was, per Google Translate, General History of the Events of the Castilians in the Islands and Mainland of the Ocean Sea, published in 1601. The historian T. Frederick Davis, writing in 1935, described Herrera's work as an inexhaustible mine of facts relating to early Spanish activities in America. I have not read it. If I stopped to tackle that sort of thing, it would take months to pump out an episode which would be disappointing for all of us, I'm sure. But Davis says that Herrera's is the only account giving the details of Ponce de Leon's voyage and discovery of Florida. Since Herrera was doing the bidding of Europe's most powerful monarch, we can safely assume that he had access to original and also secret papers, many of which have long since vanished or been destroyed. Sadly, Herrera does not say what Ponce and his crew did during those first few days on land in Florida. It should be said there's no evidence he was scouting land for a big condo development with a private marina, even though that is definitely the sort of thing Ponce would have done if he had lived 500 years later. The loudest silence in Herrera's account regards Indians. There's no mention of any sighting of them at this first landing. This suggests that Ponce and his crew stayed pretty close to shore, or that the Indians were inland pursuing seasonal food away from the ocean, or both. We cannot know, 
But since Herrera mentions all sorts of Indians later in his account of the voyage, we're fairly sure that the Spanish did not see any on this first stop. On April 8th, Ponce's fleet left the first landing site and sailed north for a day, at which point it turned around and sailed south by southeast along the Florida east coast. On April 20th, the crew spotted an Indian settlement along the coast off of its evening anchorage. The next day and a bit further south, Ponce went ashore, and here Herrera mentions Indians for the first time. These Indians were wised up to the Spanish, probably because of refugees from the Bahamas, and tried to capture the landing party's boat. In the brief skirmish, one Spaniard was conked on the head and knocked out, and two others were injured by arrows or spears. Ponce pulled his people out, not wanting to rouse the Indians along the coast into a raging war. Nevertheless, this skirmish was the first official encounter between Europeans and Indians in the territory of the continental United States. That said, on the next stop, a few miles down the shore, as they say in New Jersey, the Spaniards surprised another group of Indians who grabbed one to serve as a guide and to learn Spanish so that he could act as an interpreter. The confidence of the Spanish and the honesty of captive interpreters, even when they did learn competent Spanish, is heartwarming. On May 8, 1523, the fleet rounded the Cape of Florida and sailed southwest along the Florida Keys, which the Spaniards named the Martyrs, supposedly because from a distance they looked like suffering men. Then at some point over which there is disagreement, the fleet pointed north toward the Gulf Coast of Florida. The disagreement is whether Ponce took his ships between Keys at some safe sounding or whether he swung to the west of Key West, passing to the east of the Tortugas, a topic to which we will return in a few minutes. The fleet made the west coast of Florida by May 23rd and on May 24th entered a bay to collect water and firewood into Kareen, one of the caravels. The bay in question is thought to be Charlotte Harbor and certainly not south of Sanibel Island. A bit about careening, the biological encrustation that built up on the wooden hull of a ship in those days would slow it down and make it much more difficult to maneuver. Careening of a ship involved unloading it, beaching it, and then tilting it using block and tackle on the masts as leverage to one side and then the other. In order to clean the ship's bottom of barnacles and other vexing marine growth. Ponce's crew probably replaced rotting planks from the ship's stores and used pitch to seal seams, too. Then the Indians showed up. Ponce still preferred not to rile them up, but as one of his ships raised an anchor to re-rig it, a swarm of canoes paddled out to grab the anchor line and attempted to tow the ship to shore. The Spaniards jumped into their ship's boat and pursued the Indians ashore, eventually capturing four women and destroying two old canoes. At this point, it might be fun to quote Herrera directly in the English translation. At other times, when they repaired, they did not come to a rupture with the Indians because they saw no disposition toward it. But they traded skins and guanine. Guanine is a low grade of gold found in the Caribbean. On Friday the 4th, while awaiting wind to go in search of the chief Carlos, as the Indians on the ships said that he had gold, a canoe came to the boats 
and an Indian who understood the Spaniards, who it was believed must be from Hispaniola or from another island of those inhabited by the Spaniards, said that they should wait as the chief wished to send gold in order to trade. And while waiting, there appeared at least 20 canoes, some fastened together by twos. Some went to the anchors and others to the ships and began to fight in their canoes. Not being able to raise the anchors, they tried to cut the cables. An armed bark was sent against them and made them flee and abandon some canoes. They took five and killed some Indians and four were captured. Two of them, Juan Ponce, sent to the chief that they might tell him that notwithstanding they had killed a Spaniard with two arrow wounds, he would make peace with them. That day, the bark went to sound a harbor that was there and the party went ashore. The Indians arrived and said that the next day the chief would come to trade. But it was a deception. Meanwhile, the people in canoes gathered together and 80 men in breech clouts appeared on the ship that was nearest. They fought from the morning until the night without hurt to the Spaniards because the arrows did not reach them. And while on account of the crossbows and artillery shots, they dared not draw near. And in the end, the Indians retired. Uh-oh, more gold, however poor in quality. Here's a rule to live by. Never get between a 16th century Spaniard and gold. At this point, however, the Spanish believed that gold only occurred in mountains or downstream of mountains, and Ponce saw no mountains in Florida. He probably assumed that these guanine trinkets had come from the Caribbean by trade. This is also, for what it is worth, the first recorded account of a European dying at the hands of Indians on the North American mainland. We do not know his name, but he might have been a fellow named Pedro Bello, master of one of the ships, who is listed in Puerto Rican documents as dead and unable to repay his debts just after Ponce's fleet returned there in October. Poor Pedro. The Spanish left on June 15th, sailing west in search of islands that either they had passed on the way to Florida or the captive Indians had told them about. Herrera is not perfectly clear on the point. In the event, they reached them on June 21st and took 160 tortoises, 14 seals, which may have been manatees, and numerous pelicans and other birds. So they were eating well. On account of the tortoises, Ponce named the islands Las Tortugas, the only one of his names other than Florida to have stuck to this day. From there, the fleet headed south to the northern coast of Cuba, worked east to muck around in the Bahamas a bit more, looking for Bimini and Per Herrera, writing 80 years later, especially for that particular spring that the Indians said that restores men from aged men to youths. The Fountain of Youth. I knew you were wondering when we'd get to that. The Fountain of Youth legends of one sort or another had actually been circulating in Europe for centuries, long before Columbus. Eventually, one such rumor connected the Tainos Indians in the Caribbean to a Fountain of Youth story, and Ponce may well have heard of it. The story cropped up in various Spanish writings of the 16th century, and Herrera mentioned it long after the fact. So did Ponce go in search of it, as 19th century American writers such as Washington Irving claimed? Unfortunately for the romantic and all of us, there's no evidence that Ponce was actually looking for a magical spring. The royal patent 
is licensed for the exploration of Bimini and lands to the north contain no mention of it. Surely if a hard-nosed fellow like Ponce had believed in the fountain of youth, he would have negotiated for a cut of whatever profits might be realized from his commercialization of it. Neither did he mention it as a justification for his subsequent attempt at colonizing Florida eight years later, or ever record his disappointment in not having found it. Herrera was almost certainly referring to the spring because his readers expected it, just as I'm doing, and not because he actually thought Ponce was on a particular mission to find it. This seems like a good place to stop. We will return to Ponce briefly when we look at subsequent attempts to colonize Florida, but in the next episode, we will look at the voyage of Giovanni de Verrazzano to map the coast of North America on behalf of the French and then come back to La Florida for perhaps the most amazing survival story in American history. Thank you again for listening. If you like what you hear, it would be great if you subscribed in your podcatcher of choice. And as always, please send me comments, criticisms, corrections, questions, and pats on the back by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Until the next time... Thank you very much.